given the sorry state of America's finances, how are average households going to address the income sustainability issue over the next three decades? Are annuities the answer? Let's talk about it. I welcome to the show my guests, David Machia, the founder and CEO of Wealth2K and a defender of annuities. Gary Mettler is the annuity maestro, self-proclaimed, I believe. Self-proclaimed. Marketing. (laughs) (laughs) The author of Always Keep Your Hands Up, The Immediate Annuity Story. Right. And Scott Salaski is a repeat guest on the show and the CEO of First Metric, a flat fee advisor. And I want to be a maestro too. <laughs> we need to get we have your compliance department. <laughs> you could be the fiduciary maestro. How's that? I'll name you that, Scott. Okay. okay. So before we get into it, party people, nothing in this podcast may be construed as an endorsement or recommendation of any type. I have no financial affiliation with any of the companies discussed herein. If you desire financial advice, please consult with a financial advisor. And having said that, let's rumble. Gentlemen, Ken Fisher said, I would die and go to hell before I would sell an annuity. (laughs) Are statements like these a crime against annuities or are they a a logical statement to make? What do y'all think? Let me know. Since I wrote the article, let let me jump in. They're a crime against a lot of clients. They're an unfair besmirching of annuities. But the reality is there are a category of clients, I call them constrained investors, who have to have protection uh, for their longevity. Longevity is a precious asset. Income is a precious asset. We insure every precious asset. We insure our cars. We insure our homes. We insure... My my wife's nice engagement ring is insured. Why wouldn't we insure our incomes? For people who have an amount of savings that when weighed against the income that they must create in order to have a reasonable lifestyle, if that ratio is close, if there's no margin for error, if there's no ability to absorb investment losses, then they have to have an annuity. It's, It's an affront against decency to not supply an annuity to that type of client. And that's what I tried to convey in in that article back in February uh, when it was published. It's a crime. Hmm, a crime. Okay, who wants to go next? Any takers? Well, I guess I'll I'll go next since I'm following the annuity theme. Um, You know, I am a fan of annuities, um, but you know, Sarah, I'm not really a fan of all annuities. I mean, um, I have a very, um, talked recently about people especially in the light of what's happening economically. Um, I, I think the industry has been you know, overly weighted, in my opinion, in investment savings type products. You know, for various reasons, they, they really um, rejected or they, they um, uh, you know, haven't really followed through with the more traditional defined benefit um, income or annuities people will call media annuities. And this gets to the whole, I think of income uh, sustainability. You know, 30 years is a long time. 
And uh, there's too much emphasis being placed on what's happening in the investment rounds. You know, my investments are falling apart. I have these liquidity issues. I mean, uh, I don't know where I'm going to sell my investments for to create my income. All these things, that's just too much, too much concentration is there, in my opinion. Um, I think what's going to have to happen is that people will realize that even the deferred annuity world, that as society unravels, not just the market, you know, will there be more stress placed on households, you know, divorces, bankruptcies, business failures. It's not with the market. It's just the life happens stuff. And the problem is that savings investment account for annuities are just not designed to withstand that. You know, you're going to have lapse rates are going to rise. Life insurance is going to lapse. Deferred annuities are going to lapse. And people, will, in my opinion, have a very high potential of suffering. The fact they've had to, you know, they had to surrender all the future income to sell their assets because of what's happened with current events. So I'm a very big proponent of some annuities, um, not all annuities. I think some annuities for investment savings accumulation are okay, but I think the real reliability just won't be there, you know, for a lot of people that they won't end up being able to keep their contracts to sustain, or you know, any of their investments really to sustain their withdrawals that they anticipate making because things just happen to them, you know? So um, I think that's a, it's a big nut for me as far as um, that's one of the big things I concentrate on. And again, it isn't, um, those contracts aren't the industry favorite son, you know, they don't get a lot of attention, but they might start. And I don't know, we'll see what happens. We'll see how much, we'll see how much people, see how much money people lose. And then they'll start realizing, oh, well, you know, I should have had one of these instead, you know, <laughs> we'll find out. Yeah, my, my take on it is a, a little bit different than you guys. I mean, I think for the most part, I agree with one thing that David had said. I mean, there's a certain class of um, person uh, financially that might be, I don't know, if I think David might call them the constrained investor. There's that kind of the, there's a middle tier, there's a lower tier and upper tier. So the, the one tier where, you know, things are very, very tight. Um, there may be some opportunity for a single premium type of annuity in that situation, but Again, the issue that I have is that the annuities are mostly sold to people not looking at kind of all situations. And you know, a lot of a lot of the annuities that I've seen over the years, just reviewing them. I don't sell annuities. I don't, you know, even refer people to, to different uh, annuity brokers or anything. But there's a lot of clients and prospective clients I run across that have annuities of different flavors. They're not just single premium annuities or variable annuities. I mean, the, the whole mm. gamut of things. Mm -hmm. And the challenge is, is that a, a lot of people don't understand all the mechanics of how an annuity works. Mm. Uh, they, you know, they get asked a series of questions generally, and depending if the person is just selling insurance products or they more a full kind of financial advisor fiduciary relationship where they're an RIA or working potentially at a broker dealer, which is not necessarily fiduciary, but uh, at the end of the day, you know, they're, they're asked a series of questions and then they're put into an annuity product. And then they look back after determining what they have and they realize, oh, well, I didn't know my partner or spouse is not going to get income when I'm gone because we didn't structure it properly. Mm -hmm. Or I didn't understand that, you know, who the beneficiary is and who the annuitant is and who the owner of the policy is. All these have different tax ramifications. You know, while someone's alive is also if someone passes on. And I think that that's a lot of the big problem with the annuity industry overall is just the education factor, because these are really kind of sold products. People don't wake up every day and say, 
I want to buy an annuity. I, you know, I want to guarantee a stream of income. And, you know, I got, you know, throw this money at it. You know, again, people talk like that when they're, they're investing, you know, I'll throw a couple hundred dollars at Google or a couple hundred here. And it's kind of, they think of annuities the same way if someone approaches them with this topic. So I think education is a big thing. But with that said, I'm not a fan of annuities overall across the board for people. And if it is, it's a very small segment of the overall population. Well, Scott, I don't think you're indicting annuities as much as you're indicting incompetent annuity agents. Well, that's true. It's I right. think probably a combination of both to some degree, yeah, but, but, but more so but the, the, the annuity education. What I would ask you to think about an annuity as nothing other than insurance. We buy insurance all the time. A new annuity isn't insurance. It's not an investment, in my opinion. It shouldn't be compared to an investment. Uh, but it is a very valuable insurance product. And as I said earlier, there's nothing that is more precious to insure than someone's capacity to have income. As I tell advisors all the time, no retiree stops needing income. That's number one. Number two, Bob Merton, who's the Nobel Prize winner in economics, as you know, said a statement that just hit me like a ton of bricks. It's a very simple statement. He said, in retirement, it's your income, not your wealth, not your savings, that creates your standard of living. My God, that's so true. It's so very true. And it's so true, it means that there's a great percentage of people out there who are naked in terms of their longevity protection. And Gary's right. The purity of a single premium annuity uh, which is pure insurance for income, it ought to be a sought-after consumer vehicle. It really should be. But annuities have been muddled up with so much bad press and so many people who have an agenda against them for not necessarily the purest of reasons, but rather for a competing monetary model that it gets all confused and mixed up in people's minds. That's why I keep talking about the constrained investor. I'm trying to give people a framework where they can rationally say, okay, I need an annuity. You don't, you don't, but I really do. Okay, that, David, so David, tell me more about that. What are the characteristics of this constrained investor that you describe? So again, it's, it's the person who has money at retirement. And Sarah, it could be a, a small amount of money or it could be a big pile of cash. Could be $5 million, could be $20 million. If you have $20 million, but you're trying to live on 90,000 a month, you're a constrained investor. So the, if, if you are, then the first obligation of the financial advisor you're working with is to protect you from the risks that can destroy your income. And there's three, there are many risks, but there are three that I think are very prominent. The first is timing risk, which the industry refers to as sequence risk, right? You have people right now who piece by piece, their retirement standard of living is being thrown away because they're taking current income out of equity-based investments. You can't recover once you do that. You're, you're just permanently impairing your standard of living. The easiest thing in the world is to protect somebody against timing risk. Just make sure in that critical first 10 years of retirement, you're not taking your money from, from an equity. It's very simple. The second is inflation risk, and the third is longevity risk. So if you're a constrained investor, you need that protection against those three big risks. Well, now, to my knowledge, 
annuities are not adjusted for inflation unless there is a rider attached to it. Would I be correct? You'd be correct, but but I'm not ever saying that someone shouldn't have investments in companion with an annuity. So you can you can look at investments to put provide your inflation adjusted, um, you know, upside in companion with an annuity. I think that's the right way to do it. And some companies actually offer inflation adjusted income annuities, and that's certainly an option. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I'm not familiar with those companies. Well, let me just point David's point there. Um, most companies, um, for additional cost of premium on my side of that coin, will, um, you know, you can build the deferral to get higher income down the road, a guarantee by the contract. But it's the, at one time, there have been a few carriers that did try doing a typically like a CPI adjustment. Uh -huh. As far as I know, um, those products are all off the market now. They're just, right. just too expensive. They don't really know how to do it correctly anyway. Uh -huh. Well, when interest rates so, collapsed, it made it. Well, yeah, well, that's been 15, 20 years, really. Yeah. So what? So you can, so I tell people all the time that you can have a self-adjusting contract. If that's something they want to do, it's going to cost more money. How much more money? Well, it depends on, depends on the adjustment. <laughs> Depends on what you what you okay. buy. Again, you're buying insurance, so you're buying. All you're doing is buying more and more. The only way insurance can keep up with inflation is if you buy more and more of it. Same way with your car and your house. You have, things that go in value. You have to buy more insurance. So if you want your insurance vehicle, if you want to cover that via insurance, like David was saying, might be some of the way you might want to cover that. It's just going to cost you. And um, but even then. The adjustment is fixed by the contract. So it, it itself may or may not keep up with inflation. It just depends on how bad inflation is. You know, I mean, the adjustment might be inadequate, you know, and the only option you'd have then, if you really want to have that protection, would be buying a second or third contract mm. down the road I see. to give you some income. But um, uh, they are expensive. I mean, carriers want, you know, a lot of premium. These are all, all deferrals and they're, they're guaranteed to be made. And uh, when interest rates collapsed, those that feature became a very, I mean, this became very expensive for mm -hmm. consumers. And um, that's, that's a choice. If you want to insure that, it's like insurance, it's going to cost you more money. You know, it's a guarantee. Um, so some people have decided maybe not do that through insurance, but maybe do that through, like David was saying, through an investment pot of some kind. But what yeah, the Davis point as far as this comparative issue between annuities and the, the problem is, and he's correct, the industry kind of muddled itself. You know, the last since I've been an agent since 83, the, the inclination has been to, you know, the industry wants to be an investment advisory business. You know, they, they want agents to sell investment advisory savings contracts. That's that's what they that's what they want to do now. They want to manage those contracts, they want to issue those contracts design their investment teams to deal with those contracts. And um, that's when the emphasis has been. And so the problem is once the industry went down that road, that opened up the door. Well, you know, the investment advisory industry is saying, well, if you want to, if you want to do that, then you got to compete with us because, you know, that's where the competition gets built to this because that's when I said, well, now, now we're trying to be like them basically. And so now we have to compete. So you get these um, comp competition all the time between you know how annuities might grow and accumulate 
Right. Versus right. how and investments are going to right. make. But yeah. that's the industry's fault because that's what they want to do. So, but they can't have it both ways. You can't be in that business and then say, well, we're not, we're not we're in, we're invest with insurance people. You know, <laughs> it's like I'm talking to both sides of your mouth. So we have to compete in that side of the coin because it's forced upon us. You know, we opened that door when we went down that road and that happened for more reasons probably than we can do on this video, but the reasons for that, but unfortunately there's been too much one-sidedness. The old designs are most, almost completely abandoned now. I mean, I think as a percentage of sales are like maybe 2% of the market or 1% of the market. It's very small, you know, very small sales. The market primarily is investment savings, FAAs, FIAs, VAs, those are the kind of accounts, the investment savings people took over the industry, basically. Okay, hold on, Gary, I'm sorry. Can you just, I have a variety of listeners on to that, that follow my show. Oh. Some of them are very familiar with all of this lingo and some okay. of them are not. And I know that, that insurance can get very technical. So can you tell me what are some of those acronyms that you mentioned? And if you Okay, so like, for example, um, like, you know, contribution retirement, uh, like a contributory defined benefit plan. For example, you have all these choices, right? For contribution to five benefit plan. The same way the annuity market, it's the same way. You have variable annuities, VAs. You have in annuities that are fixed, they're linked to the markets, you know, indexed annuities, for example. And then how exactly, just yeah. real quick, how does it, I know this, but how does an indexed annuity work for the people that might not know that are listening? Well, they're all, they're all savings devices. Okay, these are all different kinds of savings devices with nuanced savings results that you may or may not get. Okay, some are market-based, some are um, how much interest gets credited in my account, with all various risks layoffs by the industry to consumers in exchange for a fee. It's like everything else in, the, in our world. Um, defined contribution plans took over, the risk layoff is employees, you have um, adjustable rate mortgages, with the risk layoff is on the homeowner to pay higher mortgage payments. You know, the idea of, of making a fixed guarantee for a long period of time is on all different kinds of industries has fallen to the wayside. I mean, no one wants to be in that business anymore. So these are all, these types of deferred annuities, these cash value deferred annuities, these are all ways the industry has decided that they can stay in business they make profits, and, and but the risks from the consumer. You know, you have to buy these variable annuities. You got to buy these index contracts, equity, uh, equity, um, uh, market index products. Fixed right? index annuities. Yeah, fixed index annuities. So these all things these have been going on for years, Sarah. This has been going on. Well, it really started, you know, probably um, when I started, you know, in the business in like '93, and just it's just been going from one extreme to another. And the very the older um, pure insurance mechanisms, which I, I call them defined benefit mechanisms, those become, you know, way 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 down. The, you know, most people will tell them, especially investment people, will tell them you're not even bothered with them. You know, they're not. Yeah, even yeah Gary, that's a reflection of a larger issue, a societal changeover. Yeah, it, it started it in is. the '70s when we moved away from defined benefit. Plans. Yes, in it's ERISA, all the same pattern. Right, it's all it's all the same thing. That's industry the, to industry. Right. The investment industry stole the conversation away from the insurance industry. When I came into the business, the insurance industry ran the pensions of the United States. Yeah, it's true. Right? It's, yeah. it's absolutely true. And uh, then we had ERISA, right? Employee Retirement Income Security Act, which I call ERA, because there's no security and there's no income. <laughs> yeah. You know? 
So don't get me going on that topic. Well, that's why the, that's why this kind of um you know debate investment people. I find it um I find it more um you know I, I see the points of view because that's like our industry's fault really for kind of trying to align ourselves with with that whole side of the coin. You know, so we have to now deal with all this. But I think that there's a unfortunately I think that clouds a lot of the other you know meaningful. Um, uh, points of view that people should have because they're safer, you know, and, and uh, annuitized future wealth is a lot more sa safe of a mechanism for people than just a savings investment account can be. It, it just can't. It can't withstand society pressures. It just cannot. Yeah. Right. And that's been my experience. Now, my experience, you know, followed um, the Northridge earthquake in 94, right? Sold annuities. And I realized at the time that people had mostly were on the wrong annuities because a lot of them had to surrender their contracts and life insurance after that event. Now, now we're facing a national economic earthquake that's going to hit. So where Northridge was a micronism for me, I'm really afraid that we're going to have a demand on assets. And people who thought they were okay, middle class or middle class people, stuff's going to happen. And you know what? Their assets are going to be gone. I don't know. I'm not saying gone in the market, you know, but gone from other reasons. Just things happening to them. And they're not positioned in a way to withstand those pressures because they have the wrong kind of, they predominantly the wrong kind of wealth. All they really have is social security. That's the only non-lapsable wealth you have is social security. You can't, that's the only, only thing anyone owns that, that can't be gone. And it has a subject of being gone. So the problem is, is when households age, people die. So just the point we get older, you need that reliability, your spouse dies, and there goes half your, half, your, half, your, half your income reliability is now gone because that spouse died. And how are they going to replace that? So when I think it's a broader topic and no one wants to discuss, um, mainly because I think the carriers aren't interested in discussing it really. Um, you know, agents aren't really trained to talk about it. You know, they're not, certainly not paid to do it. And um, it's also a lot of investment advisory people hate it because um, it impacts their business models, you know, as far as how they, you know, compensate themselves and get paid and what they would try to do. So a lot of times, uh, you know, people like Fisher, I mean, you know, he, he finally had a pivot, you know, a couple of years ago, we said, well, maybe, you know, meat annuities are okay, you know, there's nothing you can do about them anyway, you know, so you might as well throw the bone out to the industry and just say, well, um, you know, I hate all these other annuities, of course, they're all the annuities that can be surrendered, you know, and paid to his AUM, right? But he'll say, well, I, I don't mind the meat annuities. <laughs> Can't do anything about them anyways. You might as well just say he doesn't mind them. You know, it's, it's no, it's no, his nose anymore to say that. And he can kind of answer some industry critics about his, you know, hatred for annuities. That pivot happened, that Fisher, I call it a Fisher pivot, happened about, I guess, two or three years ago. We find side that he had enough and that he would, go that far <laughs> yeah so far that was, that was reason for all that it was just his business model you know he, he his business model he's a smart man he operates at the edge of compliance you know reach and both ends of the spectrum insurance life and 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 insecurities and he's out there at the marginal end and he's in a place where he knows you know he can have this line and it, it's it, you know he figured it out and this is you know, and I, I do respect him for that, that he's a businessman, but, you know, it, it's a bad message, but 
it's not illegal. It's not serious. It's not really illegal. It may be moral, but you know, he's, you know, he's found a way over all this time to tap into that market, you know, and he, he presses that very firmly. He's, I see ads every day for him on the computer. Every day there's an ad on my computer about Fisher. And it's a tragic, it's a tragic outcome. It's tragic. It is, but it's a lot of, a lot of retirees are going to suffer enormously for lack of insurance. Sarah and, and Scott. I mean, I've got an article right now at Advisor Perspectives, and it's called Prepare for the Destruction of $34 Trillion in Wealth Assets. And, and it's a very reasonable assumption to make, because if you looked at the 90, 2000 debacle, if you look at the 2008 debacle, in both of those issues, the uh, wealth-to-income ratio went right back to its historical 68-year average. If we go to that 68-year average, which I believe we will, it's $34 trillion of wealth that's going to be destroyed. And I feel badly for the retirees. And I feel badly for the advisors who wrongly believe that market returns are the answer to everything. It's just not true. There must be insurance incorporated in the portfolios of a you know, significant share of clients if you really want to serve them well, serve them properly. Yeah, I, th I think the challenge that I have with all this, I mean, you, you guys are making some good points on, <clears throat> I think, one aspect of the market. And as Gary said, it's a very small portion and has been for years and years and years. Mm. And, and the problem is, you know, basically in the last 25 plus years that I've been an advisor, almost every single annuity contract that I've run across has been something other than a single premium insurance, true insurance-based I bet. Yeah. And that's the challenge. I mean, you go to a broker dealer, you go to even large RAAs these days, and everybody's got the matrix. You know, you need a little bit of this product and a little bit of that product and so on. And they're not doing a deep dive into really understanding the client. Do they need this income? What portion of it needs to be insured or fixed, if any? And that's the, that's the big challenge out there is that all these agents are are running around with their, their certain stable of products that they like for whatever reasons. They know the ins and outs of those and can answer questions on the, the back of their head basically without even looking anything up. And that's what they do. So we move on from client to client to client. It's like a machine. But let, me, let me push back a little bit in one area. If you were a triage nurse in a hospital and somebody came in with a cut and another person came in with a, a severed leg, what are you going to do? you're going to put that severed leg person in front of a doctor right away. If one of those people who are being sold a fixed indexed annuity, which may not be the perfect product because it has an income rider that maybe isn't quite as efficient as, you know, the spear would be. I say, okay, get a bandage on that wound. It's much better to have that than to have naked protection. Much, much better. So it's, it's a little simplistic to say, okay, well, that category of product isn't good because it's got too many embedded costs, or maybe it's a little complicated, or maybe it's very complicated. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, if there's a provision in that policy that says, we will pay you a lifetime income, that's putting the patient in front of the doctor. Well, that's assuming that, again, yeah. everything was done correctly when they bought that product. Well, I'm, I'm assuming that they're the kind of person who is in that constrained category that has to have protection against longevity risk. 
Well, See, that's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, what that's I'm a saying. big assumption, though, because, I mean, every there's a lot of people. Jack, there's people, a lot of people who fit that category. Yeah, it's, there's, a, there's a, a handful of people in a certain category, I think, that are relevant. But, I mean, you originally started, I think, David, talking about, you know, depending on your spending, this could be somebody with a couple hundred thousand or, I don't know, with a low end, you set up to five million or, or whatever the number is. And it's all relative. I mean, certainly somebody with a hundred million you know, could fall in that category if they're spending enormous amounts of money. So I think it just gets down to, again, to understanding what people are spending and what income they need as a fixed part of their overall income sources, because a lot of times none of that's taken into consideration when agents are out there just selling annuities to people. Mm -hmm. You know, like I said, it's all across the board. It's usually not the, the annuities that you guys are talking about today, which are single premium annuities, whether they're immediate or deferred. It's all the other stuff that gets sold to people and it's because it's higher commissions, it's higher fees, it's higher costs. I mean, that's just the reality of it is. And as Gary said, the onus goes back to basically on the investors, the, the end person that's putting money into these products. And the agent sometimes is, is long gone many years later when these policies are once you know but, getting but, reviewed and the, the covers are being pulled back. But don't imply that they're all they're all bad because there's a lot of people who have indexed annuities who've had tremendous experience with them, positive experiences. Um, but I understand your point. I understand your point. But we can't. None of us can make universal blanket statements because it just is falls down on its face. If there were no annuities, how would a constrained investor manage? Scott, how do you manage it if someone doesn't have an annuity, but they're one of these constrained investors? Well, that gets back to the question of risk. And I think that comes back to annuities too. I mean, how much risk do you want to guarantee? And if there was no annuities, then what's the next level of risk that's closer to that, which there's no guarantees at that point, you get back to you know fixed income, you get back to dividends, you get back to uh, other products that are producing cash flow in a regular portfolio. So if you don't want to have equity risk tied to your income, then you structure a portfolio in a way where you have so many years of, again, cash flow coming in and a combination of fixed income, which is going to have interest rate risk depending on the you know maturity of that fixed income portfolio. And then over time, replenish that with equities over long periods. So it's not a it's yeah, not that's not, but that's not an answer for longevity. And uh, Sarah, you issued, well, maybe you didn't it realize is, I mean, it, but almost it, a massive indictment when you made that statement, because it, there's no tool of it. See, I, if, if, here's my wish, Scott. You come away from, from this podcast with an open mind toward at least some annuities. When you say, I don't sell annuities, that's like saying, I don't sell fire insurance. I don't sell auto insurance. I don't sell any kind of insurance. You can't. You can't ignore longevity risk of your clients, in my opinion, because some of them truly need the protection. Well, I mean, again, at the end of the day, I think there's also a challenge on the investment side. I mean, part of what we do as advisors and structuring portfolios and providing financial advice to clients, I think there's a lot of people in that industry as well that are not doing that correctly. They're not structuring a portfolio for somebody to have longevity risk. Uh, and, and basically they're, they're structuring a portfolio to provide current income. A lot of times you'll meet with a, a prospective new client and evaluate what they have in their portfolio today, whether it has insurance and annuities or not, or, or just regular marketable securities. And what ends up happening is you look at it and you ask somebody, well, why did you 
arrive at this through your advisor, how much do you have in stocks and bonds and these various products and instruments that you have in there. And a lot of times they can't remember why the advisor doesn't really you know, provide much guidance in, in that. And it was originally structured that way. So what ends up happening is over time, it always comes back usually kind of that same idea that I've got this pot of money and I don't really want to touch the, the you know, principal value, but that principal value is not today's value. That's the dollars that were put into that portfolio through savings, inheritance, or wherever it originally came from. A lot of people think in real time that the current principal is the principal that they have in there and they don't want to touch that. So if the market you know, had a great 10, 11 year run up, you know, to them, that's all principal, the growth in that portfolio. So now I'm ready to retire and where am I going to get my income from? And a lot of times advisors will say, well, you know, you can take out 4%, give or take, and that's dividends and that's interest. And you can kind of keep your principal intact. Well, th that is not right if you're looking at it from a longevity risk standpoint. I mean, if you're looking at it as a true kind of convert that portfolio to an insurance product, and you amortize that over someone's life, again, you have to make an assumption there where, again, I get the point with insurance that whether you die at 70 or you die at 120, you've got your income coming in, but let's just put the age 100 on it or just some number of give or take from there that someone's gonna live. You can certainly annuitize that thing out and that portfolio can provide income, but the reality is that's not how a lot of advisors out there manage portfolios for clients for income. So I think that there is some deficiency in the way that us as advisors are doing that. I don't do it that way. I look at basically total return of the portfolio. And then again, if there's some sort of legacy we're trying to leave, not principal, that's not a good answer. But again, I want to leave $100,000 to my two kids and I've got $10 million. Okay, that's fine. Then that means you basically have $9.8 million plus future earnings. That is that bucket of money that's going to cover longevity risk for you. But when they come back and say, I don't want to touch 10 million, then you got a problem. Then at that point, you have to look to insurance and those people generally won't look to insurance. One of the things that's worth mentioning here is that there's been a revolution in the design of insurance for the RIA model. There are firms that have sprung up with fiduciary insurance marketplaces, no load products, no commission products, products that report into your portfolio management system, wrappable products. There's been a complete turnaround in terms of how insurance products can look to an RIA. And they harmonize with the business model perfectly. And I think every RIA should be embracing them for some of the clients who need them. So I actually had a question for Scott. Um, we're kind of asking you, I mean, do you, do you actually finding that um, you actually have clients thinking that just going to live off the interest and dividend income? Well, I mean, is that, is that, I mean, is that people still believe that? I mean, oh yeah, that's, that's a very common thing. I mean, really? Yeah, I mean, it hasn't changed. I mean, who can do that? It hasn't changed in like 25 years that I've been doing this. I mean, it, it's always comes back to the same thing. How much can I get off of basically cash flow off the portfolio? Mm, wow. And, you know, that's unrealistic, somebody has enough money, that's not an issue. But yeah. again, the, the person has to rely on the principal or future growth of the portfolio in addition to cash flow. That becomes an issue. But you know, I think also the other side of this coin is, is that advisors also kind of knocking ourselves here, not, not necessarily the annuities, but it's like they do a very poor job of understanding the client's income needs. So it's like if you ask a client, how much money do you need? Well, I need $100,000. Well, they don't inquire, you know, what portion of that is really fixed income they need. I'm not talking from annuity or social security or 
I'm talking like fixed expenses. And what portion is should be you know sort of variable? We're going on four trips this year. Mm-hmm. Or if the markets were bad, yeah, we'd like to go on four trips, but we're going to go on one or two. Mm-hmm. So again, depending on how much of that is fixed expenses versus variable expenses, will also shed a lot of light into you know again at the end of the day how much guaranteed income do they need from any annuity type of product, a single premium type of annuity product. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's just a lot of bad um, getting to know your client initially and over time, not just from advisors, but certainly insurance, you know, people that just sell insurance too. I mean, that are not advisors in other areas. And I think just to sort of pivot for one minute, you know, some of the things that I'm seeing too in the advisor space, the uh, true RIA space that I have a real big problem with when it comes to kind of insurance sales is, uh, and I'm not going to name names, but there's several large RIAs and the multi-billions of dollars of AAM. You could probably go through the list and, and figure these folks out that they'll claim all day long that we don't sell insurance, we don't sell annuities, you know, we don't believe in any of that, blah, blah, blah. But then you read their, you know, 50-page ADB mm-hmm. and it's talking about, well, some of our RIAs, our independent uh, registered uh, representatives through our RIA, will sell insurance in their individual capacities, whatever the hell that means. I mean, that absolutely makes no sense whatsoever. So again, right. they're, they're out there marketing, we're fiduciaries and we're not doing anything with insurance and that makes us better. But yet now we can have the people that are directly employed by these RIAs as employees or shareholders or, or partners in the firm acting in their yeah. individual capacities. This is, this is, this is crazy. Let me tell you what it's I mean. It's a regulatory environment we have. It's a dual the environment is not designed for the 21st century. It just, you have these two dynamic ends of how securities and all that savings investment is regulated, you know, and then you have this other end, how it's regulated by the states, so it's the insurance end. And there's just not been a meeting of the minds there about how to be able to, so I, I'm not, I'm not dual license. I only have a life insurance license. I don't have a securities right license. For just for this very reason, actually, it's easier for me. But, you know, for someone who's trying to be on both ends of the barbell here, I mean, it, it, it's just, it's really crushing. And I don't, I, I don't that's think where the industry's gone, though. That, that's the I, I know that. I, I understand. But it just creates more problems, more confusion with customers, consumers, even industry participants, even I'm, you know, the CFP board. I have to be a CFP. So I'm a CFP, but I'm non security licensed CFP. Even the board passed a fiduciary guideline. I, I can't even get, can get them to give me any straight answers about, well, how does it affect a, a non security licensed individual? And all I get is, well, read the FAQs. Well, it's ridiculous because there's not been enough thought about the regulatory matters about how this might look going into the 21st century. There's just too many stakeholders with the states and for government and business models to, you know, get some kind of melding of these uh, issues so that it becomes less confusing about who's doing what, you know, and who's getting paid what, which is always a big mystery in the insurance business. No one ever knows how much everyone gets paid in insurance business, but you know, that needs to come, that, need, that, needs, that needs to come forward now, you know, so I don't know how that's ever going to do that. It may not be my career lifetime. I don't know. I don't think it will be myself, but mm. I know we'll see. Something you said resonated with me, Scott. You said that the big RIA from telling people we're fiduciaries, we don't sell annuities. That that is upside down, you know. But it's, it's understandable to me. 
every time I get something interesting in my head, I write an article about it, right? So <laughs> I wrote an article about, I went on what was called the searching for retirement income of the RIA community. And I, I looked at 40 RIA firms, websites, big firms, medium firms, and small firms. And I scanned all those websites. And guess what? In not one instance of any of the 40 firms' websites was there a mention of two words, retirement income. So it's my contention is that the RIA community doesn't even understand what retirement income is about. They don't even begin to understand. And it's going to cost them. It's going to cost them when we have the next calamitous market break. And when people see that their future retirement income standards of living were eroded away needlessly, needlessly through effective incompetence, right? Because when it comes to income planning, it is not the same as investment planning. It's a specialty niche. They don't get it. It's tragic that they don't get it. And their clients are going to suffer. And I believe personally that they're going to lose a lot of assets. Yeah, but David, you know, they, uh, they never trained that way. Most of the yeah. investment advisors, and, and, and the hardcore investments, they came up in the 80s. If there's anyone, I mean, right. there's been generation of generation. And that's what they were trained to do. There was no insurance issue. Now that people are older and they're thinking about retirement income. Well, before it was just all about accumulation, accumulation, accumulation. This is now becoming an issue because... And that's the reason I, have a, I also have a problem with one of the things as far as some of these, these RAs, you know, recommending annuities, these platforms. I, I have a problem with that whole method uh, my, myself. But it's just, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to be that critical of them because they just never, you know, if you came up to the insurance ranks, you know, you get, you get that because now it's, you know, our time. I think they started as stock jockeys, then they became money managers, then they became financial planners. But if they're CFPs, what's the first module in a CFP program? I don't know. Risk, risk what is this? I don't even know what it is myself. It's, 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 it's insurance. Oh, okay. Seems to have been forgotten. Mm. Well, so but I get your point. You're, you're, you're absolutely just, right, Gary. This is, just a, this is just how the training was. And so, um, you know, I don't, I'm not as heavily critical. I, I am critical of people who, who I believe in my mind or heart that know the difference, but choose to ignore it because of business model purposes or because of self-interested purposes. You know, that it's not just a reflection of the training. It's that they have some other, you know, well, There's a lot of that. Right. We should yeah, talk about that because there's a there lot of that. on both sides, you know, but it's just, it's just, um, it's just a, 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 you know, it's a bad state of affairs, you know, and I don't, and then I don't know how to get past all the business models that have been developed. I mean, there have been other countries who've done things differently in this respect. And again, you know, those types of ideas don't tend to make it here in this country because it's, uh, you know, anything imported, you know, is basically, you know, dirty socialism, you know, it's how he looks at it. So some of those ideas get discarded, but, you know, uh, it probably could happen, but it would have to just be a realization that, um, you know, everyone here is not an enemy, you know, it, all doing kind of do their own component parts that have, uh, you know, a part of a part of all this. And it shouldn't be these pitting against investment people, insurance people, back and forth, back and forth. It's, it's distracting. And, and consumers are hurt by that, you know. They get too many mixed messages. And that's, that's You're right. Most of it comes from the investment side. 
<laughs> it's absolutely true. I mean, this, this, you can't argue with that. I mean, well, the investment it's, side is the stronger side, right? They've been doing right. this for 15, 20 years. And they have the, leaps and bounds. Insurance business, you know, they're better communicators. The they, they have the PR edge. Diminished sure. value. This, you know, I, probably the last of my kind, actually. I agree with that statement, David. You <laughs> do or don't? I do agree. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes, right. it does come from the investment side. Um, I think I'm the last one. I, I don't know what, no more after me, you know. I think I'm gone. <laughs> So another question that we have down here is, should those with only insurance licenses that allow them to sell annuities and or life insurance be held to the same fiduciary standard as registered investment advisors with the SEC or state regulators? It wouldn't be a a state regulator because, you know, talking about SEC, is the fiduciary, you know, regulator. So that's a problem on regulators. But that's a good question. I mean, do we need a higher standard in the insurance only side of the coin um, going forward? That um, and, and I think they they tried. Of course, industry, you know, has has you know also you know had their interests expressed in this matter. And it's it's a very it's a pushing a rock up a hill. It really is. You know, and um, I don't know. I mean, I, I probably think that at the end of the day, there needs to be a higher standard for life agent only licensed people. Um, and I don't know what that would mean. That would mean, you know, a different treatment for people who buy those kind of contracts. I've always been a proponent. I think that we should be separate licensing for people who sell investment savings contracts versus pure risk contracts. But this whole idea of uh, appropriateness and how it fits in, like to Scott's points, I mean, the, you know, agents, uh, you know, unfortunately, um, the training, I mean, they didn't maybe, they maybe need to, hire, maybe I would admit that, maybe there needs to be a higher standard, probably has to be going forward. You know, no one's going to put up with this stuff for much longer, I don't think. And um, uh, I think there probably should be, you know, a higher standard. I don't know if the best interest standards is even adequate myself. I probably needs higher than that. A fiduciary standard, you know, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure it's even, even um, possible to even occur, but I think standards should rise really in the annuity business with, especially with all the, with all the complexity in some of these contracts and, 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 you know, um, you know, the obviously went down that road. So now they need to, you know, they need to, they can't, they can't change horses. You know, they got to, they got to ride that horse at the end of the trail. So I think that they need to increase their, probably their um, training and also, you know, how to hold agents more accountable, you know, like fiduciary be held accountable. So I think that should happen. My, that's my personal thought about it, but um, I don't know if it will happen. I don't know. I'd be for it. I'd be for a universal fiduciary standard. And I'd be for fiduciaries being fiduciaries. I don't even think an AUM modelist can be a fiduciary, in my view. Not the cheapest for the client. You probably like me saying that, that, Scott. But is that still the current model? I think there's some some right some people actually operating. I think uh, the models are beginning to become more. Um, I think in my understanding in the investment advisory industry, that that's an older model. It's still a predominant model. But it's the other models coming into place, yeah. 
that it's probably in the next 10 years, you know, how much is it? I don't know. I would get it. Don't you think it's well over 90%? Yeah, yeah I agree with you. It's, it's probably closer to 99% or more. Of right. It. Well, it's easier. That's for sure. So I agree with what you guys are saying. I, I mean, I actually asked that question and sent it over. But, you know, the thing is, is like, at the end of the day, I also think the term fiduciary is unfortunately become a watered down term mm -hmm. used for marketing purposes. In fact, I had somebody ah. ask me that question this morning, a prospective client called on the phone and I'm talking to them and, you know, a series of questions they have prepared. And one of them is, are you a fiduciary? Well, yes, I'm a fiduciary. It's in our contract. If we decide to work together, I spell it right out in that. And then we went right on to talk about, again, not necessarily at mine, but I agree with him at my uh, raising the issue. But he said, I kind of hear everybody calling themselves fiduciary. So I was mm -hmm. just wondering if you were a fiduciary. And then I explained, well, I think that, you know, that's an overused marketing term. And, and a lot of people have agreed more recently in the last several years. So and unfortunately, that's probably a different topic for a different whole podcast of why the regulators have watered that down through regulation best interest and a number of other yeah. things that they've done and continue to do. So, um, you know, it, it's I don't know if that's by design or by default or what, but it, it's very harmful, I think, to the industry when everybody sort of looks the same way, but everybody's operating totally different right. and not looking out necessarily for uh, an end client's best interest. Right. As industries consolidate and get bigger and more powerful and wealthier, they have more and more political influence and more influence over regulators. That's just more than financial services. That's kind of all over the place. Right. Yeah. Sorry to say. So. So now here's another question. Should right. insurance companies themselves and or others who provide marketing services and who assist advisors in marketing or selling annuities or insurance products also be held to the fiduciary standard? Or even the insurance company themselves, potentially. I mean, again, they're letting agents go out there market in products that they they have put together in our are they making sure at some baseline level that the agents that are selling these products understand these products? I'm not saying they got to go sit for tests on each of these products, but again, should they have some sort of fiduciary, maybe, maybe not this highest fiduciary, but maybe, uh, depending on, again, how much they're engaged in the process or not. I mean, what's, what's their culpability to, to look, sit back and say, we just create the product and Lots mm. of people that are licensed by the state can go to sell it however they feel like selling it. Mm -hmm. and, and that's that. I mean, that doesn't make too much sense to me. Well, that's the conundrum you have in the insurance business, um, Sarah, really, is that the problem is, is that, you know, the companies, for the most part, abandoned, you know, their career agent system. So there's only a couple companies, a couple career agent systems probably left where they can have more, exert more training, control, and things like that over their agents. And so you have all these independent agents running around, like I'm an independent agent, for example. So whatever you do, you're just kind of a product of whatever you're able to, to do. You know, you don't, you know, you don't have this oversight issue. And um, I don't know if carriers need to become fiduciaries because they're not selling directly to consumers. They're just, man there's like product, I mean, it's like, they're just a product manufacturer who's putting something out there. 
it, they're really, a, you know, this is the business, you know, manufacturing company, if you think about it that way. It's really the distributor who needs to be um, exercise, exert some control over the behavior and what they do uh, that needs to rise to a fiduciary level, right? So I don't necessarily think that the manufacturer should be fiduciaries unless they're selling directly to consumers. That's a different matter. And they might be, you know, some carriers do that. Then that's a different thing for them. But I think um, for aid, for the distribution needs to rise. And, um, you know, the carrier can only affect their own issues. They can't deal with other carriers. So that kind of fragmentation makes it more difficult, you know, because you have these people like Scott will say who can appoint with different companies. And it's very hard to know, you know, any one company doesn't know what the other, what they're doing with any other company. So it's very hard for them to, to regulate, regulate them that way. All the federal government may make, may make some changes to stop some of that, but the future, but well, we'll see, but um, it's difficult for, for the care. It really comes down to the distributor, I think, you know, to, to rise their level of behaviors and what they do and how they operate. Yeah. You Should know, a read company be a fiduciary? Should a mutual fund be a fiduciary? A, a mutual fund? They don't Should have they? agents. Oh, they don't. Well, I mean, I mean just they? they're product manufacturers. Should they? Well, yeah, but them? they're not fiduciaries, are they? Mutual funds no. aren't. No, REITs aren't. And, you know, any financial product manufacturer is not a fiduciary to my mm -hmm. knowledge. Could any entity or organization or anything else to be fiduciaries involved in this? So if we say the insurance companies can't, should marketing organizations or agencies themselves that have a bunch of agents working underneath well, them, should the parent of that you know, agency be held to the same fiduciary standard to train their agents properly? It's a good point. It's fair. You know, I think, I think if industry is being wise, what they really should do it, it, to move this ball up the hill, they need to subsidize their distributors in such a way financially. So the distributor can then move their agents to that kind of level, you know? But um, uh, I don't see it happening really. So I don't think that, um, you know, I think that probably that's where we may end up. We, we may end up there basically, especially with the DOL looking at um, issues regarding qualified funds, we may end up there. And that's something that will be a, 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 um, a uh, earthquake to the nudie business because most people have money, you know, qualified savings this is where the average person has most of their wealth and qualified IRAs and retirement plans, mm -hmm. second only by their personal residence, average people. And that's going to be a, a, it's gonna be a, a shakeup. If that happens, because um, there are precious few I think, distributors who are in any kind of position to uh, get into that kind of role, you know, financially or otherwise. And um, but we'll see what happens. But that's what I was saying before. There might be some change on the federal side to kind of shake some things up. But we'll see. Um, we'll see what happens this year. But uh, they may end up doing that, Scott. They may end up being some you know, shake out in the industry, maybe 20%, 15% of the distributors will survive it. And then maybe you'll lose half your agents, three quarter of your agents, because they won't be able to meet production guidelines, the new agency. It happened in the UK and Australia. Well, that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. Exactly when they regulated, that's what happened in Australia. Yeah, they exactly lost, uh, they lost half the people. That's exactly what happened. So that's what we're facing. But I, I don't think, again, it's overseas. You know, it's like everything that gets imported from overseas. Like, well, that's, 
you know, no one, no one pays attention to that. <laughs> we got to make our own mistakes in this country, you know. It's the way this country is. So, um, and that may happen, you know. So you might get a movement this year, next year, where you have um, this burden fall to distributors, you know. So but we'll see what happens. But um, again, only partial. But it's not really partial because it doesn't matter. If you relate the qualified side, you, you you de facto are regulating the non the saving side, non-qualified. You can't have two ways. You can have a client and say, well, I'm a fiduciary for your qualified money because I under the new labor rules. But for your non-qualified, your savings money, I'm not a fiduciary. You, you can't do that. It's not practical. So if they regulate the qualified side, it will be a de facto regulation of the entire, entire side. It'll be both qualified and non-qualified because you can't hold yourself at two different standards. So it, it would be, it'd be, a, it'd be a, a titanic move, you know, for that to happen. And that might happen. That may be what forces this whole industry to kind of reevaluate what they're doing and, you know, kind of what the products are offering and how they're doing it. And, you know, and, and initially I was against it, but, you know, now I'm thinking hey, maybe it's such a bad thing, you know, really just, you know, shrink the industry down and um, uh, hopefully um, uh that may have to happen, you know. I don't know. But we we should have a fiduciary standard everywhere that's real. Well, it's real, but it's who, real. who's going to on the insurance side? Who, who's going to be the arbiter of that? Who's going to, you know, that's the question we have. With the SEC side, it's pretty easy. Either state or federal registration. You register as a registered advisor, either state or federal. Yeah, but you can operate without being a fiduciary in 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 reality and still call yourself a fiduciary. That's what about well, you can, but if you know, that's not that's disingenuous, so I'm not gonna do that. So, but are fiduciaries bad if they don't recommend insurance products? <laughs> Only to some clients. <laughs> are commissions bad? No, <laughs> no, listen. I, I don't think so. A hundred thousand dollar transaction, <laughs> right? And, and an insurance agent makes six uh, percent, six thousand dollars. He makes right, or she makes. The advisor charges one and a half percent per year on a hundred thousand dollar transaction. Guess what? Over ten years, the advisor makes seventeen thousand dollars, two hundred ninety-five percent more than the insurance agent. Now, commissions are not bad. It's just a different way to get paid. Yeah, I didn't even do that. I mean, you know, it's, it's like, but it's like everything else. I mean, at the end of the day, is, is it disclosed properly? And I think, you know, advisors have their own challenges in that regard that are not good. It's not a good track record. I mean, they rely on ADVs and clients to, you know, comb through these ADVs and mm -hmm. try and figure out what they are, you know, charging clients. And, and at the end of the day, it's just very broad language. You know, you're going to be charged somewhere from, you know, half a percent up to, Two and a half percent, depending on complexity. That's and not right. And blah blah blah. That's I, not I, right. The way so you're doing it is the right way. In my, not, you know, you disclose right up front what it is, and that's that's clean and fair in my well, view. Thanks, David. I appreciate that. So, you know, I think it's the same thing with insurance. At the end of the day, you know, more stuff is in the prospectuses now, but you know, there could be, I think, more standard ways of disclosing this stuff. Uh, you know, again, much like the SEC is trying to do with you know, best interest and all that. But again, that that's all falling apart and it's, it's not rolled out properly. And too many states. Yeah. In the states too, the states are the same yeah, problem. I mean, whether they're regulating insurance or they're regulating RIAs, you've got 50 different models, 50 different regulators, and, you know, they're doing it different ways. And in some states, you know, if you were a 
a state regulated uh, RIA because you're managing less than a hundred million in assets, uh, you can't even do some fixed fee type of either uh, a retainer or subscription or whatever you want to call it model because the state says you're charging too much. They'd rather have you basically as a client overpay an AUM model because they're familiar with that type. I think Utah and a few other or states are under that kind of thinking that, you know, even though the, it, it's costing the client less to provide advisory services and, and overall portfolio management, they're familiar with the AUM model. So, you know, they, they want all advisors to sort of charge that model and you can have different fees under that. But if you're going to get into a subscription or an hourly fee, they want to be able to cap that out at a certain number, which actually it could be substantially less than a client's paying an AUM. So I think there's a lot of work, just I guess in summary, in my part of, you know, I've been a big fee proponent for 20 plus years of, you know, clients paying not necessarily the cheapest fee, but the fee that is fair and reasonable for the services and, you know, whatever they're, they're engaging an advisor to do, whether it's a one-off plan, whether it's ongoing advice, whether it's portfolio management and spell all that out to a client. And I think that, that our industry is going through that challenge and, and continues to go through that. Mm. And like I said, I think the SEC tried to, to help that out a little bit, but they went in the completely wrong approach and kind of muddied the water with everybody with regulation BI uh, and, and mm. continue to, to not adjust that and make it better. And I think on the insurance side, it's kind of the same way. I mean, it's left to the client to sort of dig through a prospectus and find out what are the total costs, you know, what am I going to be paying in, mm -hmm. in commissions and so on? And I don't disagree with what, what David said. It's all relative. I mean, to me, I'm sort of, I, I have a little bit of bias because I believe what I'm doing is right. But to me, it's sort of sort of fee model agnostic and, and get back to what is the hard dollar amounts that clients are paying for what they're getting, whether it's commission, AUM, subscription, mm -hmm. you name the, the fee model. And unfortunately, with sort of the, the AUM model and then also the commission model, they tend to be the highest fee models, just again, based on the way that those have been rolled out over the years. So I think that those two models need a lot more clarification down the road of if you're going to charge somebody 1% AUM, then spell out all the services you're going to be getting for that and make sure that your advisor is delivering on that. Because a lot of times, you know, they'll list a hundred different services on their website and you may only need one or two of these, but you're paying for 98 other ones that you'll probably never need. And, and the same for, you know, insurance at the end of the day, you know, whether you're paying $6,000 in commission uh, or you're getting 8,000 or 4,000, I think that's relative to, again, what you're doing for the client and also educating them that there's other options available out there. I mean, I get people calling me all the time that I could easily take and manage their money, have an ongoing relationship with them, provide advice as needed, do planning, so on and so forth. But I know I'm not the right fit. So I'll refer them to somebody else and give them a you know a short list of here, go to these folks. If they're not able to help you out, call me back and I'll send you on to the next person. That's really unheard of in this business. There's a very small group of people doing that. And I wish like on the insurance side, that would occur as well. Like, you know, don't just sell somebody a product. I mean, again, I don't think you guys are doing that, but you know, there's a lot of agents out there that are doing that where they're just selling somebody a product and because they're familiar with that company and they might know the ins and outs of that product, but there's other products out there that might be better for that client's needs. So that's some of the, the issues I have overall with you know our space and in your space. But it, it, it's improved in recent years. The compliance is much more rigorous than it was. The, it, it's not perfect, but it's it has improved legitimately, Scott. 
Yeah, and it might, but unfortunately, you know, you got 50 state regulators that are regulating insurance and they're all doing things differently and, and so on. So it, it does, it, it is muddy, it, you know, probably is improving, like you say, but it's like our side here that, you know, the improvements come, but then you kind of take two steps forward sometimes and one yeah. step well, back. The, the, regula the regulatory frameworks are just so outdated and incompetent, really, and just ill-fitting in many cases. It's, that's a big problem. Gary alluded to it before. It's a really big problem. Right. I think the whole idea about this transparency about compensation, there's a lot of tension on that in both sides of the coin, you know, and um, I'm not really familiar a whole lot with the, the agreements people sign, you know, for investment advisory services, although I just assumed they were going to be a little bit more transparent than what's in the insurance industry. I mean, it was a big, it was a big nut, you know, getting agents to disclose uh, commissions because, um, uh, you know, that hadn't happened. And now in New York, they had passed a rule several years ago where a customer had the right, and you had to tell a customer the right to know, you know, what the agent compensation was. This, this goes back maybe 10 years ago or something. And that was a big deal. I mean, that just got, you know, and it wasn't the annuity industry, what it was, it was the life insurance industry. They had, they no way wanted their clients to know what commissions they were getting paid. So the pushback really came from elements, life insurance agents in particular, versus annuity agents, that you know they don't want these transparencies. It's just too hard to explain to people. And so, uh, but now, you know, in my opinion, I think agents, if they're going to do annuity business, I think they need to disclose what the commission is. I also think they need to disclose what the upline is and that's a very hard problem for me because sometimes i don't even know what my upline is they won't tell me and they don't tell me what their company now i have a big thing i go through oh, hold on gary just for someone who might not be familiar what does that term mean upline upline is just is the master distributor for example an independent agent um uh you know basically contracts to do business with life insurance companies through a master agent Basically, upline is your master agent, master general agent, a wholesaler, insurance marketing organization. Because an agent can't do enough individual premium to to really get the carrier's attention. So they they go through these marketing organizations. They can drive you know hundreds of millions of dollars of premium every year. So the agents links up with them because the organization can drive a lot of premium. So that's why you have this upline, and they get paid. You know, every time the agent writes a piece of business. The upline gets paid, and that upline, that that master may use another master. So it, it's convoluted. So um, you really don't know who's getting paid what. So I I I, I disclose all that. I, I'm very prestigious, right? Because I'm, I'm a CFP. I have certain requirements I got to do. You know, I'm very cognizant of this. That this needs to be disclosed. And I tell people I know this is all that I know, and. Um, this is, this is what the commission is. Again, in my case, you know, they're gonna have the contract for 30 years. There's, there's no doubt. I mean, no one's keeping these contracts for five or 10 years and getting out of them. That's just not the way it works. So if the agent commission, two and a half percent, maybe three, well, that's spread over 30 years because that's how long they're on the contract for, you know? And, um, uh, um, and there's no ongoing requirement. By me, like an investment advisor has to retain that client and advise them over 30 years. That's what they're getting paid to do. 
So part of their fees they're getting is paid for this ongoing servicing advice in the portfolios. In my case, it doesn't, doesn't happen. There's no ongoing advice. It's a non-managed price. It's just a, it's just a future income that's paid to them guaranteed by a contract. There's nothing for me to advise them on. So one reason why the fees lower in my side of the house is that um, there's no future effort on my part, you know, to, uh, you know, keep this contract enforced. It is, you know, it doesn't work that way. So, um, you know, my compensation is really low compared to another uh, FIA, another, another agent maybe, or another investment advisor who has a savings investment account and they need to have an ongoing fees with advisory on, you know, how to place the money, you know, when do I incur taxation, uh, you know, um, yeah, I want to change my investments. So that's, right. that's ongoing service issues that don't exist in my world, you know. So uh, typically, um, uh, th- there's no requ- there's no there's no need. I mean, I'm not a crutch, you know. I th- in other words, my clients, I, I call the crutch. You know, don't have to depend on me. I mean, I could die in three or four years, and where are they going to be? Well, it doesn't matter if I die or if I maybe I retire. I don't want to work anymore. What are they going to do then? You know, if they have to needed me for some reason, I'm not going to be there. I'm going to be dead. So, you know, the advantage to them is that they have this con- they have this arrangement that they don't need me. There's no reason for them to pay for me. They don't need to have me. And so, um, you know, I think that that's a concept that's hard for people to, to get a hold of that because they're just not used to that. You know, they're used to these ongoing um you know, obligations between them and their advisors and how things get done. And, uh, you know, in my case, you know, it's not, 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 it's not, not, not appropriate. It's not, you know, something they have to worry about. So I think so that's a big difference. People don't really, I think it's hard for people to grasp. I think it's even hard for investment advisors to grasp that because their whole model is built upon this fee, the service issue going forward, you know, them, their, their spouses, um, widows or widows or their children, you know, it goes on and on and on the whole family line. But my, my, mine doesn't, my children doesn't work that way. You know, it's just not built that way for that. So, well, I think the compensation issue has to be reflective of, of what I do. It can't just be, you know, I'm making this amount of money. I'm going to, you know, I got to be able to justify, you know, the fact that, um, uh, you know, I'm going to talk to them. It's, we do this, it's going to be, uh, you know, this is not, I'm very clear about that. And at least how high now, any good thing now, I think, which is really important, Sarah, is that with modern technology, like everything I do now is by email. I mean, I, and that wasn't the case, you know, back in the eighties and nineties. And so you don't have all these written statements or these written client statements, these written, you know, desires or things happening that kind of prove or kind of show, you know, what's happening with the clients and with yourself, you know, and now everything's mostly done in writing now. And again, Scott, one of the advantages of not having a compliance department, and I have to be careful, I used to be a compliance officer, by the way, is that um, uh, you, you can make, you can, you can kind of go more in depth in some things. And um, uh, then you have these written things um, in writing that shows the state of mind of people who bought contracts. It shows and tells what you said. I mean, it's all... all I think I think there needs to be more of that. I, I don't know how, I don't know how to get around that because the compliance departments would have a fit probably. I mean, they never. I, I published the book, right? Then no one would let me publish that if I was a security advisor. There's no way that I'd ever get past compliance. It just just wouldn't happen. So I think there needs to be some. Happen. 
Yeah, I never, never would have approved. There's no way. I, you know, there's not stuff on there that you never approved it. So it would have been redacted and you couldn't be readable, really. So you have to just kind of, you know, I think there needs to be some give there so that people can disclose these things. And um, um, I think that will, I mean, I feel that's, that's a con problem I have with some of the conversation issues that not only are they not well disclosed, or the reason why you're getting paid in the first place is maybe not disclosed, you know, or why you're not getting paid is not disclosed, you know, and uh, people question about that all the time, you know. I've, I've looked through looked through ADB documents myself. I've looked through them, and you know, I find strange things. <laughs> that I don't know how to explain it. Like, I people sign them all the time, but they accept them, and um, you know, I don't know. So, gentlemen, I think we got to wrap up the podcast here. I've learned some things here. And I think it'll be useful for the audience to keep in mind that despite all of the negative press that annuities have gotten, they are suitable for investors that have certain characteristics. I think you said it very well. Yeah. You know, some people need annuities. Right. But I, and I often wonder the people that do need the annuities, again, which is a certain demographic of people um, based on assets and a number of other things, are those actually the people that are being approached to, to actually buy annuities these days because they don't have a lot of resources typically that they're, you know, there's no room for margin of error for mistake, but it's not a huge payday for agents, you know, selling those types of annuities, especially with somebody that's putting a couple hundred thousand dollars or, you know, three or four, even a million dollars into it potentially. You know, they're going after people that you know higher net worth. So I, I often wonder that the people that actually need the annuities, is the annuities even getting to those group of people? I think they are, Scott. I mean, most insurance agents out there, and I bet Gary will agree with me, they're never going to run away from a 50 or 100,000 or $200,000, you know, annuity premium. They're going to be happy to have that. All right, we, we, Scott and I are not going to respond to that comment because we have to end the <laughs> Okay, because we'll be here another hour and a half if we go <laughs> Another whole show. Right, okay. another whole show, okay. But I think one thing that we will all agree on that will benefit everybody is what we've kind of been touching on, which is the idea of really knowing the client and making discussions thoughtfully asking for help, asking for more information, calling on the more experienced professionals in any particular product area or service area if you have questions. And because I know I've been through insurance training and I know that a lot of times that's not what the first priority is, but I think if it were, then it would solve a lot of these problems. Do you guys agree? Well, it's because you were trained by the marketing department, basically. Precisely. That's who does the training. The marketing department it's does like, the training. I have this one, this one more experienced <laughs> mentor that came with me on those. Like you know how they make you do those like buddy calls when you have a meeting, a prospecting meeting, and they put you with a more experienced person. Oh, okay. Which, first of all, it was like humiliating because I'm going on these meetings with like my college friends, and then it's like <laughs> insurance company, like an older insurance agent. Yeah. We're, ta we're talking, hey, remember that party we went to? And we, were, remember yeah. we almost died. We were drinking and then like third wheel, right? If I've had that experience, I think a lot of people have. And, uh, you know, yes, insurance can be a very powerful tool and it is needed. But 
we have to harmonize it. You know what I mean? Like we have to make it work and the systems in place now need need improvement in order to be able to get there. But, but it has been harmonized. Now investment advisors have to embrace the harmonization. You know, I mean, I'll be the first to admit, oof, that's some strong opinions. <laughs> so <laughs> if, um, and thank you so much, gentlemen, for your time. Tell the guests, please, how they can reach you if they wish to. So um, davidmachia.com, probably the easiest way for me, M-A-C-C-H-I-A. Okay. Gary. Okay. Well, the easiest way to reach probably, well, I have a web, my own website, um, but. Um, what is the website? Uh, it's uh, uh, GarySmetler.com. But the easiest way, you can reach me by email. It's just uh, G-S-M at GarySmetler.com. And that's tied with my book. book has or you could website. just Google annuity maestro. You could do that. Or, or I could send me my own personal email address is, you know, gsmetler at gmail.com where people can call me, you know. So many emails. Um, okay. Thank you, Gary. Emails easier way. It's just better, I think, with email than calling, really. But, or my favorite social media, if you want to get into a debate, anybody who heard this podcast, go ahead and tag us all and start a rowdy <laughs> debate. We will gladly jump in. <laughs> I get a crew. That's for that. sure. Yeah, you can find me at firstmetric.com and all over social media. Right. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Please. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Thanks for having David. us.